So uh, this, this week, um, we had our small group over, and, uh, and we started talking about expectations. And, and we specifically were talking about expectations for marriage because we've got uh, one couple who's kind of newly engaged, and then we've got several young couples, and then, and then there's Carrie and me, and, um, <laughs> which is kind of weird because we're used to being the young couple, and now I've gotten older, and she's still 29. But it's... Um, Like, it's just a different stage for us. It's a different thing. Like, we're a little bit more like this mentor relationship, mentor role now. And, but we were just talking about expectations. And I was thinking back to like when we first got married. And I suddenly had this thought. I had this question that I, I wanted to ask, but I didn't want to ask it in front of anyone else. And so I waited for them to leave. And then I, I asked Carrie, I said, so babe, I was just thinking about like when we first got married, was there ever this point where it's like you kind of had me on this pedestal and you thought, man, Lucas, he's so great. He's so wonderful. He's so dreamy. And, uh, and then there was this moment where like that shattered, <laughs> you know, like there was, was there ever this moment where like I so failed or I disappointed you and it was like, oh man, I thought he was this guy. And then it all just came crumbling down and I kind of waited and, and she looks at me and she's like, no, I pretty much knew what I was getting. <laughs> and I was like, Wow, okay, that stings a little bit. But you know what? That, that's actually, there's, there's something really good in that. There's something really beautiful in that. Because, like, there was these realistic expectations. Maybe there were low expectations, but they were realistic. It's like, this is the guy I'm getting. And so there, there's something really beautiful in that. Because unrealistic expectations that go unmet can be devastating. Like, it can really hurt you. It can really destroy relationships. I, I had a really close friend who got married, and his wife had him on a pedestal. She thought he was so wonderful. He was so great. He was so perfect. And then when he disappointed her, she never could forgive him. And eventually she left him. And it's not like he, like, you know, embezzled money or, or was dealing drugs or cheated on her. I mean, he just, he just didn't live up to her standards. She had this expectation. He was the perfect husband, except that he wasn't. And so she walked away. And so we just see this in life is that these unmet, unrealistic expectations or just wrong expectations that when they go unmet, whether it's with a friend or a spouse or a coworker or a boss or whoever it is, that when that happens, that can be devastating. It can destroy relationships. And so we see that all around us. But what's crazy to me is that this happens in our relationship with God as well is that we'll have these expectations of God that if he doesn't live up to this, if he disappoints me in this area, then I'm not going to believe in him anymore and I will walk away. So one of the questions that I, I hear all the time, and, and, I, and I appreciate this question, okay? I want to frame this. I appreciate this question, but one of the questions that you hear all the time is if God is real, then why is there evil in the world? Now, Again, let me just say, like, I, I get that question. I've wrestled with that question. It's a really important, significant question that probably a lot of us have thought through and wrestled through and struggled through. I appreciate all of that. But at the same time, I just want to point out that there's like this underlying assumption here that, that somehow I know how God should run the world better than he does. They're like, God, if you don't live up to my expectation of what it means for you to be God and how you run the world, like, here's my job description for you, God, and if you don't live up to that, then I'm not going to believe in you. Like this week, I was, I was looking through some devotional stuff, and I found this quote from Jay Vernon McGee. I love this. Listen to this. This is God's universe, and he does things his way. Now, you may have a better way of doing things, but you don't have a universe. I read that. I was like, man, that's so classic. That's so perfect. 
And again, like, I'm not, I'm not criticizing. If you're wrestling with that, like, okay, that's a legitimate question. Okay, why is there even the world? Here is God. But there is this underlying assumption here that we know how to run the world better than God does. And so if that becomes a basis for us saying, well, I'm going to walk away from God, then we've created these expectations that go unmet. And is that really realistic? And this isn't a new idea. I mean, this passage that we're going to look at today in John 12, this is what's happening. You've got these crowds, you've got disciples, you've got Pharisees, and they're all seeing Jesus, but they have such a, a clearly defined view of what it means for him to be the Messiah that they can't even see the true Messiah standing in front of them. There's these expectations that they have for who he is and what he should do and how he should interact with the world. And when he doesn't live up to that, eventually they walk away. All right, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. John 12, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12. This is what it says. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Okay, so you can picture this for a moment, that, that here's Jerusalem, okay? And, and it's this week of the Passover. And so what we know in history is that at this time, like Josephus says, is that almost like three million people would show up for the week of Passover. Can you imagine that? Like three million people descending upon Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And now here's Jesus, and he's coming into the city on a donkey. And so tens Maybe more, thousands of people are coming out here to welcome him, and they're proclaiming him to be the Messiah. But they have very specific expectations as to what that means. Okay, so they come out, and, and they've got palm branches. And palm branches are the national symbol of Israel, if I can put it that way. And so for, for hundreds of years, it had been used in various rituals and celebrations and stuff. But then in uh, about 140 BC, it takes on a new connotation. Because at that point, uh, it's Simon Maccabee. He drives out the Syrian forces from Jerusalem and they celebrate. So he leads this uprising and they celebrate. He's just driven the Syrians out of Jerusalem and they celebrate with singing and dancing and waving palm branches. And so now it's not just a national symbol of Israel. It's actually a symbol of like uprising, of revolt, of driving out the people we don't want in here, driving out these foreign rulers. And in fact, if you fast forward a couple of centuries, um, even after the time of Christ, like the first and second centuries when it's the Jewish wars against Rome, they're fighting Rome, trying to drive Rome out. It's such a big deal that, that the Jewish insurgents, when they, they reject the currency of Rome and they start um, stamping their own coins— and what do they put on it? A palm branch. And not without a bit of irony, after Rome crushes that insurgency, they then issue commemorative coins stamped with palm branches. <laughs> bit of a sense of humor, Rome, okay? So, so you get what I'm saying? So when, when Jesus comes out and they've got the palm branches and they walk out there and they're waving them, they're not like, man, it's a hot day out here. Let's cool Jesus off. They're like, no, you're the Messiah, and we have an expectation that you're going to lead an uprising. You're going to drive out the Romans. And even what they're saying, what they're proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like Hosanna, like literally, that means this is the time of salvation. 
Like, here comes Jesus. Now is the time, Jesus. Now is the time for you to act. And then blessed is, in the, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a reference to Psalm 118 that, that is understood to be a, a prophetic of the Messiah. But notice their interpretation. Even the king of Israel. That's their, they tack that on. You're the Messiah. Here's what it means to be the Messiah. You're going to be the king of Israel. You're going to reestablish the nation of Israel. And so they're proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. Jesus, you're the Messiah. We believe in you. We're going to follow you. And you're going to come in. And here's what we expect. You're going to drive out the Romans. You're going to reestablish the nation of Israel. But here comes Jesus on a donkey. And John tells us that this is a reference to Zechariah 9. And let me just show you what that says. This is where it was. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But then keep reading, verse 10. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The picture here is not of a king who comes to bring war, but of a king who comes to declare the end of war, to declare peace. Jesus isn't showing up on a war horse. He rides in on a donkey. And then verse 11, it says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. See, Jesus isn't showing up to drive out the Romans. He, he says, look, I'm showing up to declare the end of war. I'm telling you that the peace is coming, and I'm going to bring it with me. And I'm going to free you from bondage. I'm going to free the prisoners, but not from Rome, but from sin through my shed blood. That's what he's saying. He's referencing back to Zechariah. And, of course, nobody's getting that. But you see there are these two conflicting pictures of the Messiah, The people are saying, okay, you're going to come. You're going to drive out Rome. You're going to be our Messiah. You're going to be like Simon the Maccabee. You're going to drive out the Romans. You're going to establish the nation of Israel. And Jesus says, actually, I come from a completely different purpose. They are conflicting. It's perception versus reality. Well, um, when Carrie and I first got married, I had this perception of her that she would like fishing, all right, and, and this sounds silly, okay, but just understand that, like, if you know my wife, that is a hilariously stupid idea, okay? Um, I had this idea that we would go on this fishing trip together, and we were going to sit in a boat for, like, a week and not talk to anyone and fish, and my wife, you know, she's an extrovert, and she hates even the smell of fish. She doesn't like eating fish, and I'm like, no, no, babe, this will be awesome. We're going to go there, and, and there's not even really running water. We won't bathe for a week. It'll be great, and she's like, do you know me at all? Like, what are you talking about? There's perception versus reality. Same idea here. Same idea here. There's perception versus reality. And everybody says, man, this is, this, they're so fixated. This is who Jesus is. This is what it means to be the Messiah. This is what you have to do. These are our expectations. And the reality, Jesus says, is it's not even close to that. You've completely missed it. You've completely missed it. Even, even the disciples, uh, if you keep reading verse 16, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So they they figured it out later. But in this moment, like they don't get it. They don't understand. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard the sign. They heard he had done this sign. 
Okay, so um, I, I love what John's saying here is that all this crowd who comes out to, to follow Jesus and they think he's going to drive out the Romans, they're there fundamentally because they saw that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Why on earth would you follow a rabbi carpenter into a military campaign? Because if he can raise people from the dead, he's really hard to beat. Like when your army is immortal, who's going to stop you? I mean, like it doesn't matter what kind of technology. It doesn't matter the strategy. It doesn't matter. Like he's a rabbi carpenter. Why in the world would they think this guy could take out Rome? If he raises people from the dead, hard to lose. Hard to lose. Okay? And then verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, nobody gets it. Nobody sees this. Not the disciples, not the crowds, not the Pharisees. Disciples are like, man, this is finally happening. This is finally happening. We're getting everything that we dreamed of, everything that we'd hoped for. We've been following Jesus around for three years, and finally we're going to go into Jerusalem. Everybody's cheering him on. This is our moment. This is happening now. And the crowd says, man, this guy raised Lazarus from the dead. Like, you you can't stop us. We're going to defeat Rome. We're going to take over the whole world, establish Israel. It's going to be awesome. And the Pharisees are freaking out. They're like, man, the whole world is following after this guy. And Jesus says, man, you guys aren't getting it. You don't see this. And so he tries to explain it to them. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his death. That he's going to die for the sins of the world. And out of his death, there will be life. There will be eternal life. And whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, not to defeat Rome, not to drive out the Romans, but to die for the world. Like, that's why I'm here. So, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I love this. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. But the crowd stood there and heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Jesus says, look, you're getting it wrong. You're thinking so small. You're all concerned about Rome? Concerned about, like, they're, they're taxing us and they've got their military here and you're all concerned about that, man. That's like small fish. I got much bigger things that I'm here for. I'm here to save you from yourselves. I'm here to defeat sin and death and to die for the entire world. But see, they are so fixated on their view of who the Messiah is that they can't see him for who he actually is. I mean, even when there's a voice from heaven even when there's a voice from heaven, like, legitimizing everything that he just said, they're like, no, maybe it thundered, or maybe there was an angel talking or something. I mean, they just don't get it. They're so wrapped up in who they believe Jesus is that they can't see the Jesus who is. Um, in, in December, um, at the Christmas at the Colonial, if any of you were there for that, this was... Um, 
If you don't know what that was, uh, we had this kind of like Christmas spectacular at the Colonial Theater in, uh, on Bridge Street in Phoenixville. And uh, we just invited everybody from the community. We had like over 700 people show up. We literally had to turn people away. It was awesome. And uh, we had, you know, an elf and Santa Claus and all kinds of fun. But at the heart of it was this gospel message. At the heart of it was this, there was this skit, and it was talking about how there's this girl who's trying to please God, who's trying to get right with God, and so she keeps offering him all this stuff, and one of the things she offers him is her good works. And so she packages up her good works, and she's like, here's my good works, I'm going to give them to God, and God rejects them in the skit. All right, he says, he sends them back, he's like, yeah, your, your good works are no good here. Calls them filthy rags, like it says in Isaiah. He says, your, your, your good works are no good here. And the whole p- purpose of the skit is to say, man, you can't please God. You can't, you can't earn God's favor. You can't do enough good things to get right with God. Our relationship with God only comes through faith in Christ. And so I was, um, I was backstage because uh, I was kind of emceeing the whole thing. And, and, but my wife and, was up in the, in the balcony with our kids. And she's standing there. And, and at one point she overhears like this little boy just over here talking to his dad. Like this little six-year-old boy. And he says, Dad, I don't get it. Like, why is God so mean? And his dad says, what are you talking about? And he says, well, like, she tries to give him her good work. She's trying to, like, do good things for him. And he says no. He rejects that. And the dad says, oh, don't, don't worry about it. God, God just wants you to be good. And the second time, the little boy says, yeah, but dad, that's, that's not what is said in the skit. Like, in the skit, she gives him her good works, and God rejects them. Like, why would God do that? What's that about? And the dad says, for a second time, son, God just wants us to live good lives. See, we can become so fixated on our idea of who God is that we miss the God who is. See, if you want a God who just wants you to be happy, or you, you, you want a God who just wants you to do good things, and and check the right boxes, then you can believe in that God. If you want to find a God who, you know, never judges sin and just wants us to be happy and to live the lives that we want to live, like you can believe in that God. Or, or if you want a God who hates this world, if you want a God who hates people and wants to send everybody to hell and stomp on their graves, man, you can believe in that God. You can believe in whatever God that you want. You can make them up. And by the way, you can find people to agree with you too. I mean, and this is, this is what... The Apostle Paul, I'll just throw this out here. The Apostle Paul, this is what he's warning Timothy about later. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, you see, Paul is charging Timothy. Like right before this, he's like, Timothy, you've got to keep preaching the word faithfully because there's this time that's coming when people are going to reject the truth. They're not going to want to listen anymore to sound teaching. Instead, they're going to start with what they want to believe. They're going to start with their passions. This is who I want God to be. This is what I want the world to be. This is how I want all of this to function. I'm going to start there, and now I'm going to construct a theology. I'm going to construct my worldview based on what I want the world to be like and how I want God to work and who I want him to be. See, we can make God into whoever we want him to be. He just won't be real. I mean, I, I talk to people all the time. Um, I, I go on, out on Bridge Street, and <laughs> so once the weather got nicer, it was funny. I was like, I'm going to go out and try to talk to people about Jesus, because I'm sure there's people out here who don't believe in Jesus. And then what I found is that everybody believes in Jesus. Like, it was crazy. I couldn't find somebody who was like, oh, I don't believe in Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus. 
like conversation after conversation. But what I found is like the more they talked about their Jesus, I'm like, man, I don't know who you're talking about. Like I talked to one guy and, and this Jesus that he was following, man, he was like hateful and racist. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like this Jesus isn't the Jesus of this Bible. I don't know this Jesus you're talking about. Like you want a Jesus who's racist and hateful? I, what, where are you getting that? You want, you want a Jesus who just says, live and let live. It's a big party out there. It doesn't really matter. Where are you getting that Jesus? See, if I'm not following the Jesus of this Bible, then I'm following a figment of my imagination. If the Jesus that we're talking about isn't the Jesus that we find in this book, the Jesus who actually, then he's not the Jesus who actually exists. And we can invent God, and we can call him Jesus, and we have this big fuss about him. But at the end of the day, this book, Scripture, as revealed by the Holy Spirit, this tells us who Jesus actually is. And if I'm not following that Jesus, then I'm just making it up as I go. I'm following a Jesus that I've made up and it's make-believe. Like if, if I'm following a Jesus who never offends me, who never shocks me, who never challenges me, who never like changes me, then I guarantee I'm not following the risen Lord. I'm just following something that I've invented. I'm following a fairy tale because when I, when I read this book, when I look at what Jesus says, man, it offends me sometimes. It's not what I want to hear. It's not what I was going for. I mean, Jesus just won't stop, you know. I mean, he's always talking about death and judgment and, you know, you got to follow me and you got to hate your life and lay it down and, and I don't want to hear that stuff. But he doesn't stop. I mean, even if you keep reading in this passage, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. There he goes again. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I mean, like, if Jesus had a publicist, like, they'd be like, Jesus, seriously, can you please turn it down just a little bit? Because you've got this crowd here, and they're following you, and they love you. And I mean, can't you just give them a pep talk? Maybe get a little call and response going here? This would be awesome. You could really have them. Like, this would be such a powerful moment, Jesus, but he won't stop. He won't stop. He says, I'm going to die. The time of judgment has come. And so the crowd... Man, this is not what they want to hear. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man will be lifted up? I love this question. Who is this Son of Man? they're, They're listening to everything that Jesus is saying. All about judgment and death and following him and about he's going to be lifted up and he's going to die. And they're like, man, we know what the Bible says about the Messiah. And this is not the Messiah we're talking about. This isn't the Messiah that we are expecting. This is the Messiah that we're looking for. What kind of Messiah are you talking about, Jesus? What Messiah is this? Who is this son of man that you're talking about? Because it's not the one we're talking about. It's not the Messiah we had in mind. This isn't the one that we were going for. You can almost hear them getting more uncomfortable. And by the end of the week, all of them have either abandoned him or they're part of the crowd that shot and crucify him. Let me just fast forward five days. They either all have walked away or they're cheering on his execution. 
all because Jesus didn't live up to their expectations. And he disappointed them. He was a failed Messiah in their eyes. And so they walked away. This week I've just been living in this passage and just praying through it and thinking about it. And, and I just found myself wondering, like, is there that point for me? Like, is there that point at which I would be following Jesus, but then he didn't live up to my expectation? Is there this expectation? Maybe I don't even realize it. Maybe it's hidden. That if he didn't live up to that, if he disappointed me, that I would be willing to walk away. That I'd say, Jesus, that was it. That was the breaking point. Because I know so many people who've, who've hit that spot. I know so many people who've lived their lives and they're like, man, I love Jesus and I'm following Jesus and everything just looked good from the outside until they hit that expectation. And then God disappointed them. God didn't live up to something that they expected. They may not even have realized it, but in that moment, God had failed them. And they said, that's it, God. I don't believe in you anymore. I reject you and I'm walking away. One of my best friends growing up, he was in my wedding. I was his best man. This guy who loved Jesus, served Jesus, was in the church doing all kinds of great things. Man, it was awesome to see him. And we would pray for each other and we'd encourage one another until the day that his dad died unexpectedly from an illness that no one saw coming. And one of the last conversations that we had, he told me, he said, hey, listen, I don't want to talk about this anymore. If God was real, my dad would still be alive. And he walked away. I want to be like, man, what are you talking about? Like, what, what God are you talking about? Like, how does that look like anything in Scripture when it talks about following him? Does he ever say it's going to be all perfect and rosy and wonderful? I'm like, where did you get that? But that was his expectation. And when God didn't live up to it, he said, that's it, I'm done. And he walked away. I got another friend. Man, same story. Same story. Grows up in the church, man, loves Jesus, following Jesus, does all this stuff until the girl that he's dreamed of, the girl that he loves, she rejects him. And he says, that's fine. You reject me and I reject God. And he walked away. And I just wonder for us, how many of us have these hidden expectations? How many of us have created this false Jesus in our mind who's going to live up to this or this or this standard? And if he disappoints us, that would be it for us. See, I don't want a fake Jesus who I've created to fulfill my expectations. I don't want a made-up imaginary Jesus that I've invented because he's going to make things turn out the way that I want them to. I don't want to wake up years from now and discover that I was always following this figment of my imagination that I created. I don't want to discover that, that, that one day that, that like that Jesus, I was thought I was following him and he's like, man, I don't, I don't even know. It's like Matthew 7, you know, that passage where the, all those people are telling Jesus, Lord, Lord, we've cast out demons and we prophesied. And he says, man, I don't even know you. I don't want Jesus to look at me and say, man, you were following some version of me. I don't know, really like there's a caricature of me over here. And you know what? Our paths kept crossing. Like you did some things that, yeah, kind of looked like you were following me, but actually you were never following me. You never knew me. You had an invention. I don't want to wake up one day and discover that I, I was following my own selfish desires that I had labeled Jesus, that I was actually just following me the whole time. See, I want the real thing. I want the real deal. I want God. I want Jesus. I want him. I want to know him. The way the Apostle Paul talks about knowing him, to sharing his sufferings so I can know the resurrection. I want to know Jesus as he really is. And I don't care if he disappoints me, he offends me, and he makes me mad at times, and he hurts my feelings and all of that. 
I don't care about any of that. I want the real thing because the real thing is the only one who can actually save me. I want the God who actually is, not one that I've invented. I don't want a fake God experience. I want the God who is because he's the one who leads me to eternal life. Like I love the, earlier in this, in this book, um, Peter, this is what he says in John 6. This is right after all these disciples had turned away because Jesus just kept saying hard stuff, kept talking about judgment and death and dying. And so they all start walking away at verse 67. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Are you going to leave me? Everybody else has. Everybody else has walked away. Are you going to leave me as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Like, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Man, I love that. Now, Peter, he might not get it later, but right here, man, he gets it. He's, he nails it. Like, what am I going to exchange in, for eternal life? What would I give up for Jesus? I mean, he holds the words of eternal life. We're talking about eternity here. What am I going to give up? Like, what would I give that up for in this world? Like, where else am I going to go? A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to um, a really good friend of mine and um, just a great guy. And he, and he sells cars. He works for this company. It's kind of like, we'll find whatever car you want, wherever you want in the country and give it to you. But he works on commission. And it had been a really bad couple of months, actually a few months. He hadn't had any sales, like not one. And at the same time, like through no fault of his own, they were just really, really in trouble financially. Some things had gone really south um, that he, like I said, he didn't have control over. Um, wasn't even making bad decisions, just stuff that happened. And so he was just desperate for a sale. Didn't know how they were going to pay their mortgage. Didn't know how they were going to pay their bills. I mean, it was getting desperate. And so he had this sale that was going through that day, and he was excited about it. This was going to help, you know, get him back on track. And, and he opened up his email, and he, he told me, he said, man, I read the first line, and I knew this guy was bailing. And the sale wasn't going to go through. And he said, I just stared at the screen, and I stared at this email, and I'm like, God, oh my, what are we going to do? And he got up and he shut the door and he went back to his desk and he just started to pray. And I thought, yeah, man, that's what I would do too. I'd be praying. I'd be like, Jesus, okay, God, you know the desperate situation I'm in and, and I, need you to, I need you to provide a sale. I need you to fix this. I need, you know, a rich relative to die or something. Like, whatever it takes, God, just, just fix this situation. We're really in trouble. You got to save us. You got to fix this. You got to do this. But that's not what he said. He said, man, I just started praying. I was like, you know what, God? I don't even want to pray for you to fix this. Like, that's not my prayer. I want, I want to pray that you would help us to trust you in this. I'm not, I'm not asking you to, like, come through and make everything better. I know you've got this. I, I just want you to lead our family through this, that we would trust you, that you would just give us this peace, that through this we would know you and love you more. I thought, man, that's so powerful. Like, that's the way that I want to pray. That's the way that I want, to, I want to reach out to God and say, God, I'm not asking you to, like, save everything in my life. I'm not asking you to meet all my expectations. I'm not asking you to do everything that I want you to do. I just want to know you. I just want to trust you. 
I want to know what it means to, to follow in your footsteps. Because where else am I going to go? And even if there's disappointment, even if there's heart, heartache and tragedy, man, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't care about any of that stuff. I want to know Jesus as he really is. Because that's all that matters. He has the words of eternal life. Like, where else are we going to go? I know for some of you here this morning that you may be in a place where you feel like God has, has so let you down. And he's disappointed you and he's hurt you and you're not sure what to make of that. And, and I get that, man. I, I appreciate that. I've been there. God and I have like wrestled with stuff, believe me, more than, more than I care to admit. But can I just like as gently and as graciously and as loving as I can, can I just tell you that, look, Jesus didn't come here to meet our expectations. He didn't come here to impress us. He came here to save us from ourselves. He came to save us from sin and death. See, the reality is that the only expectations that matter in our relationship with God are the expectations that we have failed to meet. God has this expectation for us of holiness, holiness, of loving him, of following him, of loving one another. And you and I, man, we have failed that so many times. I mean, think about how many times we have disappointed ourselves. How many times we haven't lived up to even our own expectations, much less God's. We have failed time and time and time and time again. We've hurt people and we've walked away from God in so many different ways. We have not lived up to these expectations, but Jesus came so that he could take all of that upon himself that Jesus takes all of those failures and he places them on himself, our pride and our anger and our greed and our selfishness and our racism and our bigotry and all of that. He takes all of that and he puts it upon himself so that it can die with him on the cross so that you and I, even though we have never lived up to his expectations, can have eternal life. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come here to impress us. He didn't say, I'm never going to disappoint you. He said, I'm coming here to save you from yourself. I'm going to rescue you. Do you see how much he loves us? I mean, do, you, do you, you know, I was thinking about this last night. I was at dinner um, with my family and with some friends and um, my three-year-old, okay, he gets really upset because he's, he doesn't want the pancakes that he ordered. He wants a ice cream sundae. Um, he's three. And um, so we're sitting there, and he's like, you know, like starting to like bawl, and he's getting all upset. And I go over there, and I'm like, buddy, come on, man. I'm like, listen, this is what you asked for. This is what you need. We're not going to buy you something else. And, you know, daddy's so unfair, and daddy's so mean, and I'm not, I'm disappointing. I'm not living up to his expectations, and he's so upset with me, and I just want to be like, do you have any idea how much I love you? <laughs> like, you are my son, man. I would die for you. I would do anything for you. Like, it hurts I love you so much. This is what God says to us. He says, look, do you have any idea how much I love you? And I know, like, we've disappointed, I've disappointed you in some ways. I didn't live up to this expectation. But do you see, I would die for you. In fact, I actually have. I've poured out my blood for you. That's how much I love you. 
That's how I'm going to follow you and I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to wrap my arms around you. You have any idea how much I love you. I love you so much that it hurts. I mean, am I really going to walk away from that kind of love? Am I going to walk away from Jesus who holds the keys, the words of eternal life for anything that this world has, any disappointments that I suffer? You know, I didn't get the job that I wanted. I didn't get the girl that I wanted. I didn't make the money that I wanted. This person died. I'm not making light of that. I get it. It's hard. It's terrible. I hate all of that, okay? But am I going to walk away from Jesus because of any of this, because he didn't meet these expectations? You've got to be crazy, Man, do you see how he loves us? Like so much that it hurts. So much that it hurts. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you're wrestling with God or maybe, I don't know, maybe you're just like right in step with him and you're like, man, I love him and I know he loves me and there's just that, that joy that comes from that. But maybe you're there and you're like, man, I've had these disappointments and, and I'm, I'm struggling to forgive God. If that's where you are this morning, I just want to encourage you and say, man, God has forgiven you. And we may not understand. We may not get everything that happens in this world. We may not like how God runs this world, but it's not our world. It's his And he came to save it, to save you and me. I'm going to pray for us, um, and we're going to sing a closing song. And um, if you want to talk to somebody about this or pray about this, um, we're going to have a couple of people up here um, afterwards, or um, I'll be out in the foyer, and Paul will be out there, and we can talk as well. But um, let me just pray for a time. Lord, I was just backstage earlier and just listening to the songs and the fanfare and everything, and, and it's just so beautiful. I love singing to you, and I love hearing everyone sing to you, but there's such a danger here, God, that we can be like the crowds. And they just made this big fuss, and they've got their palm branches out, and they're singing praises, but they don't actually know who you are. And I just, Lord, I just pray that we would have a clear picture of who you are, that your Holy Spirit would show us truly who you are, that we would allow your word to speak into our lives, to offend us, to challenge us, to change us. I mean, if it's not changing us, God, what good is this? But if it's real, we know that you are at work in us. So God, I pray that we would just have the humility to, to read your word as it is, to accept you for who you are. And God, if there's anyone here this morning and and they're wrestling with just a sense of disappointment in this life, that you've let them down, that you don't really love them, that you don't really care for them. I pray that this morning they would, they would find peace. I pray this morning that they would sense your presence in their lives, that they would know that you love them more than they can possibly imagine, that you love them so much it hurts, that you died for them. We just worship you, our God. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth, not a made-up God, not a figment of our imagination, but the God who is, the Jesus who is. Amen.